We're going to be looking at, uh, well, finishing up our short series through the book of Zechariah. So I invite you to turn over there, page 797. Uh, while you're turning there, just a few thoughts uh, to get us started. There's a famous story about a group of blind men describing an elephant. Uh, one said the elephant was like a tree because he touched its leg. Another said it was like a, a snake because he touched the trunk. And then a third said it was like a wall because he touched its side. And the point of this story is uh, that people's experiences shape their perceptions. None of the men were wrong, and none of them were completely right. Their standpoint, their perspective, shaped their understanding. And there's something similar uh, going on in the passage that we're looking at this morning. Zechariah is going to describe for us God's people, the church, from different angles, different perspectives. Each one uh, giving us a different aspect of who we are in Jesus. So let's pick up uh, the reading in Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. We'll go through 10.1. This is God's word. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give you showers of rain to everyone the vegetation in the field. So far, the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Father, as we consider these things that you have written and recorded for us, we pray that you would give us the eyes of faith to see our Savior, that we would hear his voice, and Lord, that you would strengthen our love for him and his people. Pray in Jesus' name. Well, last week we looked at the beginning of this chapter where Zechariah describes an invasion from the north to the south. The Lord. The King Jesus marches along the Mediterranean from Tyre and Sidon through the territory of the Philistines before arriving home at Jerusalem. And there he turns around to protect and defend his people. And the passage that we're looking at today describes what those people are like. And there's a perspective switch back and forth from becoming God's people to how we appear to those outside of the church and then back to the blessings of being citizens of Jesus' kingdom. Verses one, or 11 to 13 describe how we became the king's people and what that means for the way that we look at each other. 14 and 15 describe the church from the perspective of the Lord's enemies. And then 16 through chapter 10, verse 1, describe the blessings. Now, if you only uh, thought of an elephant as something like a tree or a snake or a wall, you'd be in for a shock when it starts walking. And that's why it's important for us to understand the whole picture of the church. You are King Jesus' people, the, the citizens of his kingdom. You're not who you were before. He is making you like him. His enemies are now your enemies, 
and you now have all of the rights, uh, privileges, and blessings of his rule. Now, the first part of this picture uh, that Zechariah gives us is in verses 11 to 13, and it describes the view of Jesus' kingdom from the inside. And it starts with how we got here. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. That's verse 11. Now, we know the phrase, the blood of my covenant, uh, from the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22. They all record Jesus saying something similar. This is Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus talked about the wine, the cup, which signifies and seals his blood. Now, Zechariah is probably thinking back to Exodus 24, after Moses received the Ten Commandments. He made an altar at the foot of Mount Sinai and then offered a sacrifice to the Lord. And he used half of the blood from the sacrifice to sanctify the altar, to make it holy. And then he used the other half to sanctify the people, to make them holy. This is Exodus 24, 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood of that sacrifice signified and sealed the covenant that God made with them on the mountain, the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore you shall have no other gods with me, and the rest. Now what's important about that is it means that God's covenant with his people in the Old Testament was a covenant of blood. It required sacrifice. It required continual sacrifice, the continual shedding of blood for Israel to stay in their covenant relationship with God. Blood had to continually be shed to cover their sins. They kept breaking the Ten Commandments, so they kept needing to be covered. And that's the background that Jesus had in mind when he talked about the blood of the covenant in the Last Supper. The whole Old Testament system, all of the blood, all the animals, all of the death, was looking forward to his death and his shed blood. He was the final and the effective sacrifice, whose blood satisfied all of the demands of justice, sanctified and set apart his people, and forms the basis of our covenant with him. This is Hebrews 9. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Our relationship with God, our covenant, with God is a covenant in Jesus' blood. Because of his death, God's righteous anger against our sin has been satisfied, and the guilt and corruption of our hearts has been washed away. His blood makes us clean and holy. And he does that all for us while we are still lost and hopeless. That's the second half of verse 11. It talks about prisoners being set free from the waterless pit. Now, somebody who is stuck in a waterless pit is going to die. They have no way of saving themselves. Their time is extremely short. If you fall into a waterless pit or someone throws you in there, you're doomed. And that was us. We were caught by our sins against our holy God. We, we were slaves to sin, hopelessly in prison, with no way to save ourselves and our time running out, doomed to be lost forever. But then Jesus rescued us. His descent into the pit of death meant that we could be brought out of it with him and saved. This is the first thing we need to see about his kingdom. The church 
is made up of people that Jesus sanctified and rescued by his blood. Sinners that he died for. And his blood is the foundation of our relationship with God, and it's what keeps us in covenant with him. He died our death and rose again to save us. Verse 12, Zechariah describes the benefits of that rescue. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you God. Uh, the first part of that statement describes our security. Instead of being trapped in a pit in the wilderness, doomed and hopeless, we are brought back to a stronghold where God himself is our shield and defender. We go from being lost in the wilderness to being safe in an impenetrable fortress, the fortress of the love and care of our God. Instead of being prisoners caught in waterless pits, Zechariah calls us prisoners of hope, captured and defended, by the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only are we safe and rescued, God adopts us as his own children. The double portion that he talks about in verse 12 is the portion given to the firstborn son. Now, it would be easy to think of ourselves as second-class citizens in Jesus' kingdom. And we think about everything that God had to do to rescue us and how often we still disappoint him. I mean, it's almost like, yeah, we're in, but, you know, just barely. And that would be better than we deserve. It is better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Psalm 84, 10. Even to be a servant in Jesus' kingdom, the lowest of the low, would be a great privilege. Being a prisoner of hope beats being stuck in a waterless pit every day. But God doesn't make us his servants. Jesus didn't shed his blood to rescue you, to make you doorkeepers in his house. He died to make you his son's and his daughters, children of the living God and royal heirs of his inheritance. That's what he accomplished by his blood. He, he rescued you from the death and destruction you deserved. He pulled you out of the pit, and he protects and defends you from any who would take you away from him. And he gives you his name. He adopts you as his own children. We get the double portion. We're not just servants in his kingdom. We're the children of the king, the sons and daughters of the Most High. And one more aspect of the view from inside I want you to see here. That's verse 13. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Now this verse is continuing some of the military imagery from earlier in this chapter, and it gets into the current status of the church. In this life, we are part of the church militant. This is the time of conflict between the sons of God and the sons of destruction. We'll get more into that in a moment. But, but first, listen again to how God describes you. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I've made Ephraim its arrow. He calls us a warrior's sword. Judah and Ephraim were the names for the two kingdoms of God's people. After the death of Solomon, Israel descended into a messy civil war and eventually split into two. <coughs> Ten tribes in the north became Israel, also known as Ephraim. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south became the kingdom of Judah. That happened hundreds of years before Zechariah. By his time, the northern tribes had well, they'd faded away into history. But God describes his people as reunited and restored. I mean, think about the picture. A bow and arrow is not an effective weapon unless you've got both parts. Either you've got a stick with a string or just a stick. God uses them together 
And together, they are a powerful weapon in the hand of a warrior. And he's describing the unity of the church, God's people. In Jesus' kingdom, the old separations that have divided us, they're gone. There's no longer north and south. There's no longer Jew and Gentile or white and black or male and female. We are forged by the blood of Jesus into one new people, one kingdom. Our backgrounds, our stories, they're important. They're part of who we are. But in Jesus, you are one body, one sword in the hand of the warrior king, a bow and arrow needing every part to fulfill its purpose. This is the picture that Zechariah gives us. It's the view of Jesus' kingdom from the inside. We have been bought by the blood of the Savior, rescued from certain death by his death. We are kept and defended by our God, prisoners of hope and not despair, his own children, inheritors of the double portion of the firstborn. And we are one church, one weapon, forged in Jesus' blood, deployed together against our king's enemies. Now, After that, Zechariah tells us what the church looks like from the outside. It's a perspective shift. And it's a much different picture. Verses 14 and 15, he describes how we look to God's enemies, those who hate our Lord and us. And the first thing Zechariah says is that when they see us, they see the Lord. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. That's verse 14. Now, Zechariah is using overlapping thematic images. He's continuing on with some of his warfare, martial imagery, swords and bows and strongholds, and he adds to that the idea of a storm. He describes God's presence as the coming of a terrible thunderstorm, with lightning as his arrows and his footsteps in the wind. This is what Israel saw when God appeared on Mount Sinai to give them the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19. They saw lightning. They heard thunder, like loud trumpet blasts. The entire mountain was covered with a cloud of smoke. And something similar happened when they dedicated the temple, and then, or earlier, the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, was filled with the presence of God like a cloud. And fire came down from the sky and burnt up their sacrifice. It's a picture of the terrible holiness of our God. The, the giving of the law, the sanctifying of the temple and the tabernacle are times when God's holiness, His, His absolute perfection and otherness are on full display. He's so holy, our sinful, creaturely eyes can't even look at him. Our vision is obscured by the cloud of his glory. Surprisingly, that's what God's enemies see when they look at you. Now, they don't see us like we do. They don't see the the ragtag group of, of prisoners and refugees, people who have no business being in God's family, except for the fact that we were bought by the blood of the Lamb. I mean, we see ourselves like, well, like Joseph in Genesis 37. Remember what happened there after Joseph told his brothers his dreams? They threw him into a waterless pit. And then when some traders came by, they pulled him up and sold him into slavery. Think about what Joseph must have looked like when they pulled him up to sell him. That's how we generally see ourselves. That's how we tend to look at the church. That is not what you look like to Jesus' enemies. When they see you, they see the presence of God. They see the cloud of the Holy One of Israel, terrifying, almighty maker of heaven and earth, the one who is holy, 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 perfect, and set apart, righteous and just. And they sense his condemnation and judgment on them and their lives. 
That's what God's enemies sense and, and see when they look at you. They, they don't see you first. They see the Lord who is with you. And they hear his judgment. And they feel his arrows like lightning. They sense his coming wrath and know he's marching forth in the whirlwind. And then once they, they sense the God who is with us, then they look down and see his army. The Lord of hosts will protect them. And they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar. Verse 15. Against the picture. Again, the picture emphasizes that it is God who is with us. The, the cause of the church will never fail. The army of Jesus Christ cannot be defeated. The Lord of hosts, the commander of heaven's armies, he is with us. And Jesus' enemies see us is an unstoppable army on the advance. And that's what these confusing images point us to. The outsiders see God's army. The church is a devourer. She's insatiable. She consumes everything in her path, almost like, like a wild animal, like a ravenous lion or a great white shark, unstoppable and ferocious. And the church of Jesus treads down the sling stones. The weapons that they try to use against her, they just they glance off her back barely even noticed. Imagine throwing pebbles at a charging elephant, right? Nothing they try can stop her. She just keeps coming, always coming. To them, she drinks and roars as if drunk with wine. This is the roar of victory, the celebration of Jesus' conquest. Our ears, it's the music of the gospel, the, the good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For them, it sounds like noise and confusion. You can see that happening. Uh, back in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, the citizens of Jerusalem thought that the apostles were drunk and carrying on. Not drunk, filled with the Holy Spirit, proclaiming what Jesus had done in every language so all might hear. Being full like a bowl and drenched like the corner of the altars are, are pictures of God's judgment. Think of the bowl judgments from Revelation 16. God's enemies see the church as the wrath of God being poured out on the world is terrible and just a man for blood to be shed for what we've done. And the good news of Jesus proclaims judgment to them because it, it reveals them. It shows them who they are. The altar is drenched with blood, vividly portraying the penalty for sin and what Jesus did to rescue us. To those outside, it just reminds them of God's demand for blood to be shed for the crime of rebellion against him. If you've ever wondered how people can hate the church, hate Jesus, this is why. Now, we don't get it because we sit on the other side. When we look at the church, we see prisoners of hope. We see our brothers and sisters in the Lord uh, adopted into God's family. We see the people Jesus redeemed at the cost of his own life, the, the hopeless and the doomed that Jesus drew out of the pit. And please excuse the bad fun, but we're, we're pitiful, right? It's not what God's enemies see. Think of the difference we read earlier in Hebrews 12. When we come to worship, we see God and the, the heavenly Jerusalem. We see innumerable angels celebrating. We see the, the assembly of the firstborn, all those who have gone before us in the faith. We see Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant whose blood speaks a better word. They see Sinai. They hear the trumpet and see the blazing fire. They know they've broken God's law and that judgment is coming. That's why they hate the church. Because they are God's enemies and God is with you. It's the difference between cheering the conquering king from behind him and cowering before him as he rides to war. 
Don't be surprised when you hear about persecution. It's not that people are ignorant and need to be better educated. There are, there are political and religious systems that are enemies of God and hate him and his people. There are people who hate him. And that will continue until Jesus returns and finally destroys them all. Now in verse 16, the perspective turns back to inside Jesus' kingdom. Verses 15, 14 and 15 are, are about conflict and war, and then 16, 17, and 10, 1 are all about the church victorious. And it starts with a picture of peace. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. And the church goes out with her king to meet her enemies, and the Lord gives them victory. God is our shepherd. We are his flock. And the Lord and his people are victorious. Zechariah says it will happen on that day. That day is the last day, the final day, the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day when Jesus rides out in battle against his enemies and his people are finally rescued and brought home. And it tells us two things about the conflict that we saw in verses 14 and 15. First, the victory belongs to Christ, not to us. We talked about this last week. Our, our war, our conflict is not fought with the weapons of this world. You can't force people to become Christians. You cannot compel them to believe. We do the things that God told us to do. We pray, we worship, we serve. We give an answer for our hope. And as we do, Jesus builds his church. And he uses those things. He uses prayer and worship and his word to take his enemies and turn them into his people, to rescue them from the pit. We have to be clear that this is the Lord who does this, not us. Our job is to follow him and trust he knows what he's doing. But then the second important thing there is our conflict, our war has an end date. We're not going to be the church militant forever. You won't have to have those fights against the temptations of this world and the devil in your own heart forever. There will come a day when the battle is over. And that day is set. It is marked on the Lord's calendar. It is circled and highlighted, and it is coming soon. It might even be today. When Jesus' church is full, he will save us as the flock of his people. And Zechariah describes for us what that day will be like for us in the second half of verse 16 and the 17. For like the jewels of a crown, they will shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Isaiah uses a similar picture, Isaiah 62. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. That's what's going to happen to you. That's what you will be like. On that day, when, when all of King Jesus' people are gathered in, you are going to be the jewels of his crown. That's us. That's the same group of people who had to be pulled up out of the pit by the blood of Jesus. The people who struggle their whole lives to believe him and trust him, who fight against sin and temptation and lose a lot more times than we care to admit. He's talking about us. We will be the jewels in his crown. You will be his most treasured possession. The, the thing that he shows off to everyone. Because you are the people he loves and shed his blood for. I mean, no wonder Zechariah says, how great is his goodness? How great is his beauty? It's the goodness of God that takes his enemies and makes them into his children. We, we don't deserve it. We certainly didn't earn it. But we will be there because he loves us. Because he is gracious and kind and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We will be the proof and display of his grace and mercy for all eternity. 
And on that day, you will see your Savior. Not, not hidden behind a cloud. Not veiled by our sin. You'll get to look at the one who made the stars with your own eyes. You will see the unadulterated glory that Moses longed to see and was not able to. The glory that the angels can't even bear to face, but, but cover their eyes with their wings. And you will see Jesus. A week after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples, including Thomas. And Thomas had told the others that he wouldn't believe Jesus was alive unless he saw it with his own eyes. So the Lord showed up and showed himself to Thomas. In John 20, 29, he said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And that's us, right? We, we do not see and yet we believe. But, but on that day, the day that Zechariah has in mind here, on that day we will see. And we will look at the face of the one who loves us enough to die for us, who rescued us from the pit by going all the way to its bottom so he could pull us up with him. How great is his beauty. And the last few statements go back to the theme of the Lord and the storm. Green shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, and from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. The same God who appears to his enemies in the thunder and the whirlwind sends a gentle rain to his people and blesses them with abundance. This tangible expression of God's love to Zechariah's original hearers, they, they remembered when God had withheld the rain over the rebuilding of the temple. They knew the story of Elijah and the three years without rain. But, but God gave them the rain that they needed to survive. They wouldn't be kept in a waterless pit. Their king and their God would provide for them. And that is true for us as well, both in this life and in the next. Seeing Jesus will be, it will be the greatest thing that any of us ever experience. Living with him as jewels in his crowns forever in the new heavens and new earth will be the height of love and happiness. Somehow, it will make all of the troubles of this life seem like a light momentary affliction. I, I don't have the imagination to understand how that can be true, but I know it is true. I believe it because he can make it happen. And on top of that glorious future that he is preparing, your king cares for you right now. He knows how to give good gifts to his children. He knows our weakness and our frame. He knows we are but dust. And he provides for us what we need. Not always what we want, but always what we need from him until the day we see him face to face. You see the difference that, that the perspective makes? Inside the church, Jesus' kingdom, we see him as our redeemer, as our rescuer and protector. He poured out his blood to rescue us from that waterless pit. We are his children, united together by the work he did for us on the cross. For those outside, they're going to see something else. They'll see the awful presence of God coming in judgment and wrath. They will see an unstoppable and relentless army conquering the world for the name of Christ. And they'll hate us because they hate him. But the final picture Zechariah gives us there goes back inside Jesus' kingdom and he shows us our glorious future. There will come a day of peace when all our conflicts are done. A day of glory when we behold our Savior face to face, how good, great is his goodness, how great is his beauty. And the same God who comes in judgment against his enemies will bless 
and provide for us both now and in the future. Now, some versions of the story of the man or the men and the elephant end with them arguing with each other. Uh, no, it's like this. No, it's like that. That's not what Zechariah is trying to do. You have the same forgiveness that changes the people inside Jesus' kingdom is available to, to everyone, even his enemies. It is available. If you don't know him, it's available to you right now. If you want to know Jesus as your king and your savior, you can. Come to him right now through his blood. Ask him to forgive you, and he will. He will draw you up from the pit. Don't, don't stay outside. Don't try to fight him. Come into his kingdom through Jesus. Be rescued. Be adopted. Be forgiven. Be welcomed. Join us as we await seeing the beauty of our King. Please pray with me. Oh. Lord, we are so thankful that you worked in our hearts to rescue us from our sin and our death, that you washed us clean by the blood of your Son, that you set us apart and sanctified us, that you adopted us and gave us the double portion, the inheritance of the firstborn, that you have promised to protect us and defend us, that, that we will be the jewels in your crown. How great is your beauty. How great is your goodness to us. Father, we pray for any who might be among us this morning who, who do not know you as their, their Savior and their Rescuer, that even now you would change their heart, uh, that you would call them sweetly into your kingdom, that they would uh, lay down uh, their weapons against you and and know you as, as the loving shepherd. Lord, give them eyes to see and embrace Christ as he has offered in the gospel. And Lord, we pray for, for ourselves that as we depart this place and go to the various callings that you have given us, that you would set our hopes and our minds on Jesus and remind us that we are, are looking forward to the day when we will see him face to face. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.